Hello everyone and welcome Ooh. to episode 6 of Raptor Rambles. Wow, we're uh, we're up to episode 6 already, which is uh, yeah, it's been it's been really fun and I've got another great episode for you now. What I have decided to do is we've decided to Ooh. record a slightly different intro to the pre-recorded one because obviously this is a great opportunity for me to also update people on what's been going on with Raptor Aid. So apologies, this is a little bit more off cuff, but yes, this is this is probably the format we're going to try from now on. So what's been going on with Raptor Aid? Well, obviously here in the UK we're still in lockdown with the pandemic, so we've not I've not been able to get out much. And one of the things that I've needed to get out and do is put up tawny owl boxes as part of a master's degree that we're supporting alongside Chester University. So we did a year last year, young young lad got his master's degree. Obviously it was difficult with COVID restrictions, but we put 22, I think, tawny owl boxes up and he was looking at territories, mapping territories of tawny owls. Uh, this year we're going to do again, we've got another student with the university that's, that's going to follow it on and I think she's going to look at habitat use as well. And so we're putting up another... 15 or 20 tawny owl boxes we're obviously cutting it a little bit fine because tawny owls are quite an early nester in bird terms here in the uk and so we're coming to the end of january and even though i have seen there's one pair of tawny owls on social media that have laid an egg already january is exceptionally early but obviously the birds will be looking and picking nest sites because usually by march they're on eggs so yes we get we've got uh five more boxes to get in place and then we're ready for the uh for the season and fingers crossed covid subsides and we'll be able to uh to do some monitoring this year what else have we been busy with or have i been busy with of course our pellet dissection kits so I'm about to go to the post office after I've finished recording this and drop off another 15 parcels. When I came up with the idea of owl pellet dissection kits, well, for Raptorade, this is nothing new. I've not, I've not pioneered owl pellet dissection kits. But when, when I came up with the idea for, for Raptorade and we designed and developed a kit, I couldn't have been any more chuffed with how the, the kits have come out. And obviously, you the people... Uh, are equally as pleased because we've had some amazing feedback and I have nearly completely sold out of our pellets. We've sold over 500 pellets as part of kits or to go to schools uh, and other things along with that. So, so tweezers and yeah, loads of other bits of equipment. So that's been really great. And I never in a million years thought that I would nearly sell out of barn owl pellets before we got to the next barn owl breeding season. So, yeah, considering I had a chest freezer full of pellets, I'm probably down to my last 150 pellets at the most, which is incredible. So I won't get any more until we go out and start checking the boxes, COVID permitting this spring summer. So I'll have to restock. But that's that's been amazing and hopefully people have enjoyed it during lockdown. It's it's been really yeah, it's been really quite great to uh to be able to provide people with this this learning resource and of course the money goes straight to the charity and so that will be there to support projects like the tawny owl nest box project that I've, I've just mentioned so that's that's really really good now on to episode six 
Today, I'm going to be interviewing a good friend of mine, Neil Forbes. Now, some of you might not have heard of Neil before. That's that's okay. But I can guarantee you, you want to listen to this podcast. Neil Forbes is a veterinary surgeon of over 30 years. He's pretty much at the top of his game when it comes to avian veterinary medicine and orthopedics. People go to Neil when they want to know. He's trained, I think in the, this interview or this chat, we, he mentions training over 100 other veterinary surgeons through through the internships that he's run in the past. He's even worked with and trained, well, I say trained, he's worked with super vet Noel Fitzpatrick, those of you that watch a bit of TV, and, uh, and well, of course, who who wouldn't want Neil's help with a penguin with a wonky foot? And that's that's exactly what Neil does. He's right at the cutting edge of his field. He's now into consultancy and he does a lot of work out in Africa with African vultures and conservation efforts to save them. And we'll hear all about that in episode six. So enough jabbering from me. Here's Neil Forbes on episode six of Raptor Rambles. So good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to episode six. Well, it's morning here in the UK anyway, so uh, we'll stick with that. And I'm really, really pleased to introduce to everyone Neil Forbes. Now, it's uh, is it Dr. Neil Forbes? How do you refer yeah. as a veterinary yeah. surgeon? Yeah. It's Dr. Yeah. Neil Forbes. I know, I know. Obviously, you've got more letters <laughs> after your name than I've got in my whole name. So, so uh, yeah, you, you, that's definitely something to shout. Um, I must point out to people listening, I've been lucky enough to meet Neil and work with Neil before. So if I sound a bit, I try and get in a few cheeky things in there because I feel I know Neil. So so, so that, that's, I, I'm lucky enough. And we'll probably touch on, I've got one story in my mind that I want to, that I want to repeat back to you, Neil, and see if you remember. Okay. I think it's one of the first things I ever experienced with your work. But anyway, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us. I, I, what I, I just mentioned to you then, we always start the same way with with uh, with starting right back at the start. If you can okay. wander back that far to yeah, yeah. obviously becoming a veterinary surgeon, sure. um, whether that was the master plan or not. So um, and your love of wildlife and, and animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go okay. to the start. So I was brought up in Surrey. My family were always uh involved and associated with uh the countryside wildlife um etc etc um what uh, people in the bird world field uh, field would be interested to know is that my maternal grandfather in other words my mo- my mother's father was bill rutledge uh one of the very very early members of the british falconers club down in avebury and he spent the, the the last years of his life living at Beckhampton, just down the road from Avebury. Uh, he set up a, a breeding project with Leonard Harrell, and it was the two of them who bred Merlins in captivity for the first time ever. He he was an amazing guy, and I wasn't lucky enough to spend a lot of time with him when I was young. But he he was uh, brought up and reared in in Ireland as a, an Anglo-Irish person, well traditional family over there. Went to uh, Dublin University and then to Cambridge and then back in the days of the colonial service he went off to the Sudan and worked on locust control as an entomologist for the whole of his career. Unfortunately most people would say he then suffered pleurisy 
and got retired on grounds of ill health. He was lucky to survive because of the days before penicillin, um, but he survived that and retired uh, on health grounds at the age of 37. And he, you know, he did a lot of falconry with a, a lot of indigenous Sudanese birds uh, whilst he was out there. And he, I mean, he, he started falconry when he was in his teens. Uh, he went to Cheltenham College and he had a Sparrowhawk prior to that and so on. Anyway, cut a long story short, um, he, he then came back to the UK and obviously did lots more falconry and, and that's when people uh, know of him from that time. There's a, a range of manuals and books and things that he's contributed to. So um, that's my sort of link with falconry. And it's interesting that his brother, Robin Rutledge, uh, he actually spent his career in, in India, working with the, the British Army in India, retired and got very much involved with wildfowl research. And in fact, Castlespie, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust Centre at Castlespie in Northern Ireland, they have the Rutledge Hyde, which was named after my great uncle. Um, and uh, I, I have been associated with uh, WWT in Slimbridge for probably 35 years now. And uh, in fact, neither I nor they realised for many, many years the familial connection between myself and WWT. Anyway, enough of that. So brought up with, with wildlife and so on, always spent our holidays doing sort of farm holiday breaks uh, in, in Wales, Ireland, Cornwall, Scotland, etc., etc. And initially, uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a farmer when I grew up. Um, and then I, I very much got into fishing, game fishing, trout fishing and so on. And I thought, now maybe it would be uh, uh, some sort of aquaculture thing. And then I decided that was a little bit limited. So what about veterinary? And sort of talked about it with the people at school and they said, no way you're going to get there. Forget about it. And then I did my, uh, my O-levels and they then said, well, you know, you might have a chance. So um, got back into, into that stream. So moved from sort of farming to aquaculture to veterinary, uh, did my A-levels and uh, completely flunked them, to be honest. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and fortunately, I flunked them badly enough to, to have to go back and reset them. Right. It wasn't a question of choosing a second option. So went back and, and uh, reset them and, and did okay. Um, and sent my results off to the Royal Veterinary College where I had a conditional place. And I hadn't, I hadn't quite got enough to guarantee the place. And they then responded and said, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure you're going to get in. You better make other plans. So uh, the next obvious plan, I mean, you know, if you're a failed vet, obviously you, you look at being a doctor, don't you? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I traipsed around all the London medical schools, um, George's and King's and uh, UCL and Westminster, and basically just knocked on the door during clearance and, and said, here's my CV, here's my application. Um, I'd like to be a doctor, please. And most of them just laughed. Um, and, and I ended up with an interview at Westminster Medical School. And I remember the guy saying, why on earth should we ever consider giving you a place? We've got the sons and daughters of doctors who wanted to be doctors all their life. And, and here you are, you wanted to be a vet until last week. <laughs> um, but I convinced them it was all to do with the, uh, the, the interest in uh, biological research. And I'd done some research in, in my uh, biology A-level and that uh, actually I wanted to be a vet because I wanted to be able to see cases from the start the whole way through to the end. Whereas, of course, with, with medicine, if you're a GP, anything interesting then gets referred, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, Westminster offered me a place. At that stage, I hadn't been officially 
rejected by the Royal Veterinary College. So I couldn't accept it. And then about 10 days later, I got a call from the Royal Veterinary College saying, oh, Mr. Hawes, we'd like to offer you a place. But what's this about Westminster Medical School? <laughs> so obviously Westminster have been in touch with them and saying, look, come on, get a move on, make a decision, because we'll have this guy if you won't. And whether that was the deciding thing in me getting my place at the Royal Veterinary College, I don't know. Anyway, I trundled off to the Royal Veterinary College in um, 1978. Uh, no, 1977 it was. And uh, so that's based in Camden Town in London. You spend your first, second and fourth year in Camden Town and your third and fifth year out at uh, Potter's Bar in Herefordshire. Sorry, Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire, let's get it right. Um, and that all went well. And it's kind of ironic because I got... You know, I must have got scraped in at the bottom of the year. We had 70 students in the year. By the time I finished, I finished in the top four with honours and all the rest of it. And I, th I think for me, it's all about, you know, getting engaged in the subject. And uh, uh, and, and so, you know, once I was there, I did, did really well. And being there was, being in London was really good. Um, and again, a family connection and what really sort of opened up avian medicine for me. And that was that, John Cooper, who BFC members will be aware of as a uh, honorary veterinary surgeon to BFC. Uh, John was at that time a senior reader in comparative pathology at the Royal College of Surgeons. That's the medical surgeons at Lincoln's Field in London. Okay. And John, John was a great friend of my grandfather's. And my grandfather, when, when John was sort of trying this drug, trying that drug, trying out anesthesia on birds for the first time, um, he would go and do some of these things with my grandfather's birds way before the days of proper controls and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and so my grandfather knew him well. And my grandfather introduced me to John um, when I was at vet school. And then when uh, during some years of my college days, uh, when when some other students were off playing rugby and football or hockey or whatever, I would actually go and spend that afternoon, uh, Wednesday afternoon with John uh, in his laboratory at the Royal College of Surgeons. And uh, that was very interesting and stimulating. And you know, I, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to birds of prey at that time. Um, but I, I got a bit more with John. And then he was really good for me. And John's a fantastic guy and a real, uh, someone who really stimulates and motivates people. And he would get so many opportunities to write book chapters and papers and, and give lectures. And he just couldn't do them all. Yep. So um, he very graciously passed some of those opportunities through to me. So I graduated in 1983 and probably, probably 1985, 1986, I got the opportunity to go and lecture to the BWRC in Bristol or the, 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 the organisation that became the BWRC. And that was my first opportunity to go and lecture about uh, birds of prey and so on. And in the meantime, it was the day when the APHA, DEFRA as they were, had a wildlife licensing division. And at that time with birds of prey, because captive birds of prey, well, wild birds of prey were under threat still because of DDT and so on. And therefore people with captive birds of prey, you know, there were question marks and where did the bird come from? And if they were gonna breed, were they really breeding? So at that point, uh, DEFRA had these wildlife inspectors that had to go and witness nest building, egg laying, hatching, ringing, and so on. And when I graduated in 1983 from the Royal Veterinary College, I, my first post was in Sedba in Cumbria. Um, so like all other best veterinary surgeons, starting my life in the Yorkshire Dales. 
e-bike lad and all that. And and so I got the opportunity. I I became a wildlife inspector. It's you know it's a non-veterinary role. It was a, a layperson's role and an actual very minimal pay, but it gave me the opportunity to go and meet with bird of prey breeders through the whole of the breeding process. And I got a lot of really good uh, contacts at that time. And then I, I only stayed in, in Sebba for 18 months. I then moved down to, and I, I was going to move to Devon, where somewhere where I'd done some of my uh, sort of vacation study at vet school, because uh, whilst you're at vet school, you have to spend six months working in practice with vets during your vacations. And so I'd done that in Surrey, where I was brought up, and my father then lived in on Exmoor. So I spent the rest of the time on Exmoor. And I was due to move to Exmoor. Would have been beautiful, lovely, lovely countryside, and I'm very, very fond of it. But in the meantime, uh, when I'd first left college, I'd had an introduction to a veterinary practice in Stroud, Gloucestershire. Got on really well with the people. They said, look, I'm really sorry, we don't have a vacancy this time, but if anything ever comes up, we'll let you know. And out of the blue, I got contact from the acting senior partner there, a guy called Julian Reed, and he said, look, I'm really sorry, my, my senior partner, David Keane, has just had a stroke. We're going to need to take on an extra person. We've suddenly got a vacancy. And of course, you know, for me, the whole point was this was a, a practice that was something like, I don't know, 12 miles, maybe nine miles from the largest waterfowl collection in Europe and 15 miles from the largest bird of prey collection in Europe. It was a no-brainer. I had to do it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, from, from that familial contact to working with John Cooper at the Royal College of Surgeons to then becoming a wildlife inspector and then being, and, and I did some veterinary work. I mean, I, to, to be honest, I did some bird of prey work before I even graduated obviously under the auspices of a veterinary practice it was down in Exmoor and, and I can remember uh, operating on on birds belonging to some very famous well-known falconers from the past sparrowhawks and, uh, and and so forth so I you know I'd done some work with birds of prey I did more work with birds of prey in in, in uh, Sedba Cumbria did all the breeding stuff got the opportunity to come to Stroud and then obviously made contact with both Slimbridge and the uh, International Centre of Birds of Prey at Newant. And within a period of a couple of years, I then became the veterinary advisor um, clinician to both of those organisations. And, and I've worked with them uh, from there uh, for about 30 odd years, both of them. And obviously along the way, uh, building up lots and lots more um, bird clients. I have to say Jemima at ICBP was absolutely fantastic. She was, she was always someone who, you know, if there was a disease outbreak going on, if there were problems, she always really wanted to get to the bottom of it. She wanted to know what the problem was. And, and she didn't stint on spending money on histopathology and microbiology. Uh, and, and she actually part funded the very first time I went to America to the Association of Avon Vets Annual Conference, um, she part funded that trip. Uh, because she could see that it was to her benefit to improve my ability. Um, so things went, went uh, you know, from, from better to even much, much better. And then in 1992, I became a Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons recognised specialist in zoo and wildlife brackets avian, in other words, a specialist in bird medicine. Yeah. And I then became a diplomat of the European College of Avian Medicine and Surgery, and then in time became president of that organisation. And then we changed it to the European College of Zoological Medicine, 
and that organization still exists and we have specialists in different groups we have bird specialists we have herpetology specialists small mammal specialists wildlife population medicine specialists and zoo health management specialists to do with people in zoos and that is now something like the third or fourth largest specialist college uh, of vets in in europe um with um, um hundreds hundreds of, of diplomats which is really really good and i set up a residency program in stroud when i still was there and then in time uh, we had to move out of there because we'd run out of space and i moved to swindon and set up a specialist referral center there and uh, over the years i think i've trained uh, something like 13 residents so that's they, they have to go through a three-year training program to then be allowed to sit their diploma exams to become a european uh, recognized specialist in bird medicine which i was and i have run this program in swindon for i think it was about 17 years and i've now trained a third of all the dip or a third of all the specialist avian vets in europe have been trained by me um, which you know it's it's nice because i i leave a legacy and i see these guys going on and giving papers and doing research and and so on which is really really good really nice and, and they're scattered around the world, everywhere from Australia, Central Europe, the Darrell Institute, all sorts of places. So, you know, I, I feel good that I've done some good in that way. What a uh, whistle stop. I, I feel like we probably could have ca could carry on talking about that, that. I mean, I'm trying to think. I've just thought of so many questions and I'm trying to think back to to uh, where, where you started. In terms of it, what I found really interesting there, Neil, was obviously you, you had... I'd heard of, of your uh, Bill Routledge uh, having a background, obviously, in falconry myself. And so that was wonderful to hear about that that family link that you've got to it. But it was lovely to hear about John Cooper as well, because, I mean, I've never met John. I think yeah. I might have emailed him once about yeah. something, but I've got his book, uh, yes. or books, yes. um, yeah. of course. So that was lovely to hear mm. that he gave you that chance. Going back to school, though, did you ever see any of your teachers again to say, look at me, not say, look at me now, here I am. Did, you know, it's one of those classic um, ones, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I got the opportunity to go to Sherburn School down in Dorset, um, and I had some great staff there, some good biology staff. Not uh, chemistry and and um, and maths was good, but uh, I did a subject called uh, physics and maths combined where I had bad staff. But my my budgie staff, uh, Roger Gibson and David Lloyd, they were they were fantastic. I did never see them again. I did have contact from them because they knew what I'd been up to, and they asked whether I could go back to the school and give lectures and stuff. And one of the things, I mean, just to explain to people, because you know, through my career, I've had lots of opportunities which I've generally taken to go off around the world and give lectures in America many times, Australia, South Africa, uh, and, and so forth, and all across Europe, obviously, and, and the UK. And, you know, that's absolutely fantastic. But just to explain, when, when people ask you to give lectures in a sort of academic field like that, first, you don't get paid for it. You, you have to spend a lot of time preparing those lectures. Uh, sometimes they're based on research that you've done, that you've published. Sometimes they're just sharing your experiences. But in any event, you do a lot of work preparing those lectures. And certainly if you get asked to go as a keynote speaker to say Australia or South Africa or America or something, you've probably got to give eight or 10 lectures, uh, one hour lectures. It's a tremendous amount of work. And then when you go to give the lectures, you, you know, people say, oh, it must have been fantastic to go to wherever. To be honest, typically it's, it's an international hotel 
you arrive at an airport, you get bus to the hotel, you do your lectures, you go straight back, and you've been away from work for a week, so there's a pile of work to catch up with, and the family are missing you, and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you can turn around and say, well, why do it? But actually, it, it's about spreading knowledge and, and meeting contacts and, and so on. So I've, you know, I feel very blessed to have had that opportunity and, um, through my career to do a lot of lecturing. I've written more than 65 peer-reviewed scientific papers. I've contributed 37 books. So, you know, I kind of feel I've, I've done my bit in that respect. But I have to say, and I know it's a subject that's going to come up and you may say I'm jumping gun. Well, before I, before I get to that point, I, I do want to say my very first peer-reviewed scientific paper was co-authored with John Cooper on a disease which Merlin's, which my grandfather had bred, suffered from. So fatty liver kidney syndrome of Merlin's. Um, so it was a lovely family link. And that was my very first paper. And we published it before I even qualified. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the rot had set in. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously over the years, with the, the number of patients we'd had to deal with, it's given me the opportunity. And the, the lovely thing about avian medicine, and, and I can remember when I started, there were kind of like three avian vets in the country. There was Nigel Harcourt Brown, Brian Coles, myself, and then on the pathology side, John Cooper. And that was it. And there was, you know, we had very few journals and books to refer to. It was all very, very new. We did have the opportunity to discover diseases, to publish our findings. And that was that was exciting. It was exciting to be in a, in a, a science where you could make a difference and, and could find answers and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, yes, that that's great. And, you know, compared with other uh, disciplines in, in veterinary medicine, that's that's been exciting and challenging. Of course, what it also means, you know, when I graduated through most of my career, all vets did their daytime work and then they did their on call and they worked the weekends and all the rest of it. And then over the last 10 years or so, of course, you know, both with doctors and vets, that stopped people have understood that actually if you're going to work properly in the day, you do need a break at night, you do need to get some rest, you don't, you mustn't be stressed and all the rest of it. But avian medicine, exotic animal medicine is still different, that actually we can't have a relief person to come in and work for us at night, because generally speaking, they don't exist. Yeah. And I was very fortunate, and I suppose one thing that really helped me is in setting up residency programs, so I would be there as a specialist myself, I would generally have two residents and because they had to be with me for a minimum of three years doing their training, you know, they were there for a good period. So they not only became useful, but they came, became a benefit to the, to the service. And then I would usually have an intern as well. So it was a team of four because being honest about it, interns and residents aren't paid a fat lot of money because they're in training. Um, so we could afford to pay those people and have enough people to, to run a good clinical service. And, and I can put my hand on my heart and say that the thing I was really pleased with was that that was available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to anyone who phoned up and wanted it, as long as they're going to pay for it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had people coming from hours and hours away and some, some people from abroad. And if we, if we have time, I'll tell you a really funny story about a, an abroad case. But through that career, I've obviously developed lots of skills, techniques. Um, so uh, one of my particular interests is orthopedic surgery uh, in birds, obviously. A lot of the techniques that are now used um, around the world are ones that we have actually developed. We've, we've maybe 
taken procedures that were there and we've refined them and improved them and, and changed them and so on. And that's been really, really good. People say, well, you know, you must have saved so many birds and it must have been so good for conservation. And I have to be honest and put my hand on my heart and say, actually, in the UK, has it made a difference to conservation? Not really. No. Yes, there are some special birds that we've dealt with. You know, there have been occasions when we've had wild hobbies and honey buzzards and uh, ospreys and things like that, and, and eagles occasionally. It hasn't really made a significant difference. But in, in more recent years, I've had the opportunity to spend quite a lot of time in South Africa. Tracy Murray, good friend, falconer, bird keeper, she introduced me to Volpro, the, who are the main vulture uh, rehabilitation conservation or rehabilitation facility in South Africa. She introduced me to them. I went and met Kerry uh, Walter, who runs it, set it up and runs it. And that opened a completely new door to me, which, which really has been very exciting and very, very fulfilling because I was able to go to a country where their avian medicine was years behind ours. And initially it was a question of me looking at a few birds, fixing a few birds, and that was all very exciting, very different. And in fact, my, I, I went out initially and I did some training with them on rehabilitation. We realized that there were a lot of vultures coming into care that sadly, because their injuries were so old, were losing wings uh, and they couldn't go back to the wild. Therefore, there was the, there was the potential to use them for captive breeding. Yeah. Uh, okay, that doesn't save the vulture, but actually developing knowledge and experience uh, as to how to breed with them, how to successfully breed from them, and also to, to, to get them back into the wild is good. IUCN will tell us that you shouldn't reintroduce birds to the wild unless the, the, if they're a threatened species, unless the cause of the threat to the wild population has been resolved. And I completely understand that. Having said which, over the last 12 years, the numbers of birds released by Volpro, and we're talking about whiteback and cape vultures, they actually amount to 20% of the existing population now. And you, you actually can't tell me that releasing 20% of the current population was not a benefit to that population. Yes, of course, education, publicity, training young people to understand the importance of vultures in the ecosystem is absolutely vital. Myself, Joanna Perry-Jones, Holly Kale, and Adam Block from ICBP went over and then ran a training session at Volpro. Uh, this is probably going back about six years now, and we were doing training on uh, captive breeding, uh, rearing chicks, biosecurity, infection control, and then I checked in some other stuff on, on rehabilitation. And whilst we were there, and with this was in January, whilst we were there, Valpro had, um, I think I'm right saying it was 13 wild injured vultures brought in in a 10 day period. And the last one was a real shocker to me. It's a white back vulture. So it's one of the endangered, the critically endangered species. It had a, a, a mid shaft fractured humerus and we phoned up the facility that provided their veterinary care. And the response was, yeah, great, bring it in in three days time. We're too busy to deal with it till then. And, and that suddenly told Kerry and I, look, now there's a problem here. If you've got a critically endangered species with a broken wing and it can't get treatment for three days, firstly, there's a welfare issue, pain, infection, but also in terms of saving that individual bird, that's a problem. So Kerry badgered me and um, I got myself uh, organized in the end. And we then started running training courses for South African vets and rehabilitators. Um, so my wife, Karen and I 
Um, and um, together with best people at ICBP and Rick Hartness over in America, we set up an organization called Ultra Alliance. And the whole, our whole idea was to bring a new skill set to the problem of vulture conservation. And I completely accept captive breeding, repairing them, getting them back into the wild is not the solution. The solution has to be management of the ecosystem and management of the risks. And obviously the risks are um, malicious poisoning, accidental poisoning, power cables and infrastructure, power turbines, uh, and also sadly um, local people killing them for body parts for use in, in black magic. Um, so those are the things they need to be addressed. And, and whilst the Asian vulture collapsed, 99.9% .9 of the Asian vulture population went, it was due to one cause, one cause, diclofenac. And okay, it's not completely removed from the ecosystem, but they're doing pretty well and they, you know, they're, they're on the way to re returning it. In Africa, it's very, very different. Of the 11 species of vultures in Africa, seven of them are either critically endangered or endangered. And the causes, as I say, poisoning, malicious, accidental, power generation, and moti. And if you think about it, those causes, you know, firstly, there's more causes. Secondly, those causes have been going on for a much, much longer time. It's been happening for 60 years. We've lost more than 98% of the African vulture population. Um, and because of the causes, it's not one switch to put it right. And it's all about education of local people. How do you convince people that they don't want body parts for black magic? 80% of the local African population still go to a black magic doctor, not to a Western trained doctor, although it's yeah. more expensive because they've got faith in it. And that faith involves the use of body parts. How do we solve that? Power generation. More and more people in Africa, understandably and quite correctly, want their own houses and they want electrical supplies. Therefore, the mushrooming of power cables in South Africa is absolutely immense. And ESCOM admitted to me that they are responsible for 34% of all vulture deaths. That's the electrical company. Uh, quite amazing. And I, I don't want to sort of cause problems and, and go too much into that. but. You know, that's a major, major issue. So, you know, whether we will save the African vultures or not, I don't know. But what we have done is we've gone over there repeatedly. We've now trained more than 100 South African vets. And during that process, we've also had vets join us from Namibia, from Botswana, from Jordan, from Austria, from France and from America. Um, and we've done what we call wet lab training. So it's not just here's a lecture. This is how you do it. Yeah. But, <clears throat> Here's the lectures and we'll give them to you for your use. And we will sit down for a day and everyone has a cadaver. So a bird that has died of natural causes and we will work through and they will do eight different fracture repairs from simple to very complex in front of me with small groups, just maximum of 16 people at a time. And none of these things are complicated. It's just that it, it's, it's breaking down that barrier so people have confidence to do it themselves. And it was really quite interesting because we wanted to be able to monitor the outcome of that training. So we asked people to uh, write down the outcomes of the 10 raptor rehab cases they dealt with before the training and the 10 they dealt with afterwards. And we wanted to compare the outcomes. And the feedback I then had is, you know, this ain't going to work. And the reason is because 
we are now trying to do things we never would have considered possible before. And okay, some of them fail. Some of them are really, really successful. But the, the feedback we've had um, has been absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't know whether people are aware of, there was a terrible episode a couple of years ago now with um, a more falcons, uh, red-legged falcons um, on migration from Africa through to obviously Asia and they got hit in a hailstorm. And I forget the numbers, it was something like 2,000 uh, uh, ML Falcons who, who were injured in this hailstorm. And it was staff who I had trained who then dealt with it, which was really, really good. The lead surgeon at Sankob, the South African uh, seabird rescue organization at Cape Town, um, he's someone that we've trained. We've actually been and, and held a course there um, and 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 so you know that knowledge has has gone out and my belief is having trained 100 people in that situation they will all train their colleagues and and so the the ripple effect and it's that age-old cliche you can feed a family or you can give them a net and train them to fish and feed the village for the next 50 years and that's what we've tried to do with the teaching of orthopedic surgery and rehabilitation techniques so, I mean, just touching on the rehabilitation, I feel really, really sorry for rehabilitators. They are typically lay people who are terribly, they're very, very committed and enthusiastic and doing a fantastic job, but typically with no money, no resources and very little veterinary backup and support. So when we first went to, uh, to Valpro uh, and said, Kerry's doing a fantastic job, um, but you know, she's not veterinary trained, uh, she is a qualified para-veterinary person, and, and that's basically to allow her to do various, various minor veterinary techniques, giving fluid, intravenous fluid therapy and so on. And um, so the birds would come in and she would make an assessment as what was wrong and she would do the best she could. And that's absolutely fantastic. But we went and we introduced some science to that situation. So when a vulture arrived, Firstly, you know, we'll do some screening. We'll do a fecal test to see if it's got parasites. Not just so we can treat that bird's parasites, but so that the enclosure that that and 30 other vultures are living in doesn't get contaminated with a new parasite that bird brings in. There are a particular problem with fledgling vultures failing to successfully fledge. And about 20% of all the birds they were having coming in fell into that category. So you say to yourself, well, is that just bad luck or is there a reason? Then you think back to your basics. You think, OK, so any bird of prey has to eat a whole carcass diet. In other words, fur, meat, bone. OK, where do vultures get their bone from? Because the carcasses that a vulture generally eats, the bones are too big for a vulture to swallow. And the answer is, the jackal, the hyena and the lion come along, they crunch up the bones and the vultures eat the bone chips. Okay, well, first thing is, when vultures in captivity, no one had twigged that actually, if there aren't any lion, jackal and hyena, you've got to get volunteers with hammers to smash up the bones to give the bone chips. Okay, so we did that. So that was a, a good health positive that came out of it. And then we said, okay, well, with these fledgling birds that are coming in, why are they coming in? And, and we managed to get a piece of laboratory equipment, a patient side testing kit called EPOC, uh, 
from a supplier in the UK, took it out there. And um, what we were able to show is that when you test a bird's calcium level, you can test total calcium or ionized calcium. And ionized calcium is the biologically active calcium in their body. And it should be between one and 1.1 millimoles per litre. Yeah. And one of the first birds we treated had a, a level less than 0.25. Now, the machine doesn't read any less than that because basically it's supposed to be incompatible with life. So the point was the bird managed to grow big, long, straight bones but it was weak and incoordinated in flight because it was lacking in calcium, because it hadn't had any bone chips. Why hadn't it had any bone chips? Because the farmers had been poisoning the lion, jackal and hyena because they were a risk to their goats and sheep and, and calves and so on. Um, and that was why the vultures were suffering. So part of this science was testing for fecal things, taking a blood sample to test has the vulture got an infection? And if it has, do we need to treat it? Testing for blood calcium levels so that um, if, you know, if they were just weak, we could just give them some calcium, vitamin D3, and they get released in three or four days and be completely fine and successful. And then the last thing we added was lead testing. We know published data tells us that between 12 and 32% of free flying vultures in Africa have lead poisoning. And that's obviously because they eat carcasses that have been shot. And so when birds came into care at Valpro, by testing them all straight away with a lead care test, we were able to then, and a lot of these birds, you know, severe cases would have clinical signs associated with poisoning, fits and seizures and twitching and incoordination. But 85, 90% of them would be what we call subclinical lead poisoning. Now that would affect their eyesight, their coordination and their strength in flight. And some very interesting research that was done by Reese and Reese in the UK looking at swans, which shows us that the swans that hit the power cables have more lead in their system than swans that don't hit power cables because their eyesight, their coordination, and their strength in flight is affected. And guess what? The same applies to vultures in Africa. So the vultures coming in that have had power line cable injuries, a percentage of those are because they've got lead poisoning. Once you know they've got lead poisoning, you can treat, it's very easy to treat them and then they get better. So our whole point was by introducing science into rehabilitation, we have been able to, and hopefully long-term, not only at Valpro, but at other centers, we will have a lasting long-term beneficial effect on the percentage of birds that will then get re-released and, and, and make a full recovery. So I feel very, very fortunate in my career. I've had that opportunity to develop avian medicine. I've made a contribution to the science in terms of lectures, papers, books, and so on. But also, you know, I mean, that that's great. As I say, my work in the UK, it's been fun. I've saved lots of birds. Has it made a difference? Not really, but it's given me the opportunity to go and use those same skills for critically endangered populations of wild birds. And by teaching other people, sharing with them my skills, then the hope is that long-term, not just now, but for years to come, there will be a long-term legacy of uh, my knowledge and experiences going, I'm not saying we're gonna prevent vultures becoming extinct because I think that's a real, real challenge, will certainly delay them becoming extinct. And maybe that gives the other guys who are working on 
education of local populations of people uh, to minimize poisoning, et cetera, et cetera, mitigation of power line um, strikes and so on. Uh, maybe long term, um, we, we will make a difference. So I feel very blessed to have had that. There's very few vets who can actually say, my career and skills has allowed me to make a difference to a endangered uh, free living wildlife population. And, and so I, I feel good about that. Well, I, I mean, uh, I'm so, I didn't actually write any questions down for this, but I'm glad because I don't need to. This is, this is absolutely brilliant, Neil. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just sat here in awe. And I mean, I knew some of these things. The, the, the bit you mentioned then about the, without going into detail, um, the, the swans with the lead poisoning is fascinating. Mm. And, and I'd, I'd heard before, obviously, about the bone, the bone, chip, bone chips. And it's, it, it just harks back to what everyone, what people keep telling uh, and linking it to is this symbiotic relationship. You yes. know, people yes. realise that, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the role that lions and hyenas also Absolutely. play on vultures yeah. and, yeah. and so yeah. on. I mean, the thing that, and this, I'm not going to go right back to something you said, but you mentioned before, just briefly about John Cooper and help it, you know, you going in and him sharing all this stuff with you the Wednesday afternoons with him. And that's, that's one of the things that really always struck me with you having worked with you. I've, I've been lucky enough to work with um, or, or use vets before and Richard, I'm lucky enough, you know, Richard yep. Jones doesn't yep. live far from here, another avian specialist. So I've been lucky enough to work with him with my birds when I was, you know, when I had my own team of birds here, but you were always willing to share your knowledge. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to visit you at Great Western Referrals with when I was at, ICBP and you were always willing to invite us in I know we probably mm -hmm. got a bit of privileged treatment because we you know the connection at the ICBP but you know you know I've, I've stood there and watched you and you you always taught me through it and really I was just bird staff I know I cared for the individual bird and that was one of the things that always struck me with you Neil is you were always prepared to take the time to explain in layman's terms especially yeah. to me yeah. 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 And, and and so that's wonderful to hear. And I think that's probably, if I, if I were to pick something, just chatting to you, one of your biggest legacies has to be those 100 people that you've trained as well. Yeah. Because, like you say, that, that ripple effect, it must be so pleasing to see mm. these, uh, you know, these people go on and produce their own work. And then they send me emails and say, I just want to tell you, Neil, I'm so excited. I got this bird in, it had this really nasty fracture. I thought it was totally hopeless um, and we did it. And, and what I've done with all of those guys, I said, look, you know, I'm here to give you digital remote support. So if you want to send me an X-ray and ask my opinion, how should I do this? So it's an ongoing support basis as well. Um, if I can just pick up on one thing you said, you said about this um, uh, circle uh, environmental effects and so on and i just want to share one other little um is issue we, we talked about bone chips but and people think about um rickets bent bones calcium deficiency in the young chicks as they grow up they think of this as a captive bird problem and it's not and and again through my career i mean i i've been consulted on cases of owls in australia uh, buzzards, wild free living buzzards in the UK, you think well, how on earth would they ever get um, rickets? 
And the answer is you have a mix of mitosis. Buzzards normally, they, they might eat a whole lot of earthworms and, and some little tiny baby rabbits and some mice and things like that and some dead pheasants that people have shot, but they don't generally have big rabbit carcasses unless there's a myxomatosis outbreak. And if there is, they then feed those rabbit, big rabbit carcasses to their offspring. And one of the points I always make to people, and, and captive bird of prey rearing is just the same, you know, People used to always only use Dale chicks. Uh, and then over a period of time, people said, well, maybe Dale chicks aren't so good. You ought to feed a better diet. How about feeding rabbits or pigeons? And the point I make to people, it, it isn't what you feed the chicks that matters, it's what the chick consumes, okay? So you're giving a carcass that's got more bone in it, but at what age in a young chick's life is the diet most critical. And it's from about two to 25 days of age, bearing on species, obviously. How big is the bird? It's pretty damn small. And how big are the bones in the pigeon or the rabbit? Yeah. Too yeah. damn big for the chick to eat. And that's exactly the same as the wild buzzard eating a big rabbit, feeding a big rabbit to its chicks. So you have a situation where you've got a wild bird whose food supply, the bones are too big for the chicks to eat and the chicks grow up with rickets. I've had the same thing in Scotland with golden eagles. I was approached by a gamekeeper from a, a deer estate up there and he said, look, I'm really concerned. These golden eagles, they produce young every year. Uh, they, they look fantastic. They get to leave the nest and they can't walk and they can't fly. Can you help us? So they sent down a carcass and of course they got bent bones. And then we, we spoke to them and yeah, you know, this area, there were no rabbits, there were no hares. The golden eagles were surviving on fallen deer and sheep carcasses. Guess what? They got big bones. So what can we do? And we do exactly the same in Africa now. We've got a number of vulture colonies where we have the same problem. And what we do is during the breeding system, during the breeding season, we supplement their feed with small mammal carcasses. Rabbits and hares, chuck them out during the breeding season. That means the chicks are naturally fed by their parents with small bones and they don't get rickets. So, you know, as you say, it's that uh, the whole environment works as a circle. Yeah. And if something has gone wrong and people may assume, well, that's the end of it, we can't do it. And some people would argue we shouldn't interfere. But certainly for me, if there's a way of us just by simply giving some additional food for a three or four week period, we allow those young chicks to survive and fledge and be successful and go on to breed more themselves particularly when you're dealing with something like golden eagles in Scotland or vultures in Africa, that's certainly worth doing. Absolutely. You, you touched on something just at the, at the start of that about, you know, and, and, your student, and you obviously found this out from the feedback you mentioned with the, the, the staff of that that you were trained at in South Africa, that where they, they would have never considered doing that procedure, say, yep. on, on a break or something like that. Yep. And this sort of links into a st the story that I mentioned at the very start, my one of my favourite Neil Ford stories. Do, so when I worked at ICBP, do you remember um, the, the, I think it was a tawny eagle that 
that broke yes. his neck. Yes, yes. And I think I... Oh, that just, one, yes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think I just started at ICB yeah. Pit at the International yeah. Centre of Birds of Prey. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it happened because I remember Connor, the volunteer, it, it, um, was there as well. And he had... Well, it was him who, who found the bird. Yeah. And, but the... Pres- the procedure that you went through and this bird, this this essentially you made a neck brace for the bird to stop it from moving its head. And then you, we were feeding it through a tube straight into its crop. And yep. I was just like, this is for me, someone who'd worked with birds of prey for a long time, yep. Yep. but I've never seen this, this level of care. And I'm not saying that other vets, please don't think I'm saying other vets wouldn't go to, but, but it always seemed see, to be you went that extra bit further. Yeah. You, you see that, that that was a great example, and it's still one that I show when I'm teaching. Uh, I show show people the X-rays and and show pictures of the eagle after the next sports for So just to explain, basically the eagle had flown into the front of the aviary and it had a broken neck. You know, most most people think, well, that's the end of that then, isn't it? Um, and the the eagle wasn't dead at this point. It was very weak and wobbly. It couldn't coordinate properly, um, and you know, yes, we could put a neck support on it, uh, some some nice soft material first, some cotton wool or something, and then some uh, heat label um, plastic casting material. But all that would do is create a fulcrum at the top of the neck uh, between the, ne- the the neck support and the head. And because the fracture was only at the I forget it's the second or the third from top vertebrae. It was right at the top and it would have made it worse. So what we did, and this was pure, you know, creative, do something different, uh, try something. Um, I put a pin through the frontal bone, so a, a, above the eyes, through the frontal bone at the top of the bird's head, and then um, bent the pin through 90 degrees and took the, the two legs of the pin back and joined it to the neck support of the neck. And that way we stabilized the head to the neck support. And as you said, that then meant we had to feed the bird. So we introduced a tube into the crop um, and, and then attached it to the bird's back. So we could actually feed tube the bird for the three week period whilst the bone was healing. We then put took the neck support off and you know, within 48 hours, the bird was flying around the aviary normally, and within a couple of weeks, was completely physically normal. And you know, that was a great example of just being creative, blue, blue Peter thinking, if you like, or blue sky thinking. You know, it's it. It was just here. We've got a problem. No one has ever created a solution for this in avian medicine. But let's do yeah. it. And, and, you know, I suppose, yes, I'm a bit creative and, and I think that way. And, and as I say, through orthopedic surgery, there are a stack of those. There's, there's probably eight or 10 different techniques. And I'll tell you one other example of that situation. I, I went to South Africa on one occasion and went to Valpro. Oh, and in fact, I think Kerry sent me an x-ray first. And this was particularly poignant and sad. At Valpro, they have... Uh, rehabilitation facility so injured birds get brought in they have a group of captive breeding birds that are unreleasable ex-wild birds they also have a vulture restaurant vulture restaurants are really important in providing safe food for vultures and what had happened is a bird had flown into the vulture restaurant with a broken leg so they bought themselves to Valpro and and this bird had a really badly broken leg so the bone where there are no feathers, the, the tarsometatarsus, the bottom bone in the leg, 
was not only broken, but was smashed, that it was just in pieces. And uh, Carrie took it to a local veterinary service out there, went to the university, uh, the head of the exotic service, one of their, their patrons, uh, Professor Vinnie uh, Naidu, uh, got his input as well. And everyone said, look, this is just totally impossible. We cannot do anything at all. Now, Kerry, bless her, um, she wasn't prepared to accept that. So she didn't ask me what to do at that point, because this was all before I got involved. She, she just put a splint on the leg, but she only put a splint on the tarsal metatarsus. So the, the intertarsal joint was still moving. And that, would, that was, you know, if I'd been asked at that time, I would have made that difference because for that to heal properly, you'd have to stabilize the intertarsal joint. Anyway, she put a, a, a splint on that. And I got to see the bird, I guess, about three or four months later, by which time the bottom bit of the, um, the bottom half of the tarsometatarsus has healed, but the bit in between there and the intertarsal joint was still a complete mess. Now, in the meantime, love him or hate him, super vet, Noel Fitzpatrick, I had been working with him on a few bird cases, basically giving him bird input and knowledge to cases he was asked to deal with. And we dealt with a penguin from Longleat, um, which uh, as a young bird had uh, um, had an injury when it was very young and it developed with one leg going uh, back, the, the foot was upside down and the leg was twisted out sideways by 45 degrees. So I worked with Noel and um, to be fair, it was Noel's, well, you know, I explained what had to, had to happen and we did an arthrodesis. So we arthrodesed the penguin's ankle and we put it back straight and turned it upside down. And again, that was revolutionary work. We didn't know, no one knew, if you fused the ankle of a penguin, can it still swim? Can it jump out of the water to a standing up position? Can it go from lying down to standing up? Yeah, the simple answer is yes, it could, but we didn't know that before we did it. And then I took that same, same technique of an arthrodesis. So when I went to see the vulture, I said to, to Kerry, look, the only thing we can do is to fuse the ankle joint and put a transarticular fixator. So a fixator going down the tibiotarsus onto the tarsometatarsus and join the two together. Um, and of course, the answer is the fracture that everyone in South Africa said is totally impossible. You're going to have to put the bird down. Worked and the bird is absolutely fine. And you know you would never do that surgery on a falcon, a hawk, an eagle, because they need to move that joint to be able to catch prey. But you know what? If you're a vulture, as long as you can fly to a carcass and hop around a carcass and eat food, that's all you have to do. If you have a fused ankle joint, it doesn't matter. So again, a completely new technique that no one had done before that saved a bird's life, a critically endangered species. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was, I was going to bring up a super bat, but uh, I, that's the one, one of the one. My wife loves Noel Fitzpatrick and and super bat, and we've been to yeah, we she has it on, and the one of the only ones I've ever watched is because you were on it with the penguin, <laughs> because you're the proper super bat to me. You're training Noel Fitzpatrick, so. So there we go. That you are the proper you are the proper super vet. Anyway, I said this to Emma and I point this out to her anyway. But, but yeah, uh, no, no, Fitzpatrick, she's one of your students as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, 
that's but that's one of the things I often hear from and, and it was a question I was going to ask you and this could be about rehabilitation in the UK or rehabilitation well anywhere in the world for birds some people say to me when when they see a, a rehabilitation of a barn owl or or you know a species that's not of conservation concern um obviously there's the welfare aspect of it and the stress that the bird may be put under um but a lot of people say to me they say what's the point you know if it, and, and one of the common arguments i get is well mm. if it can't survive in the wild then what's the point? It shouldn't, you know, it's, it's survival of the fittest. Uh, this is how they've evolved. We, sh yeah. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't interfere and do anything. I suppose my argument, and this is where I sit on, on the argument, is, well, often the issue is because of humans. There's, there's normally, if it's a barn that's been hit by a car or it's flown in, into netting or something like that, and we have a right of a duty of care and, and so yep. yeah we should do anything what's your are you, are you I, I can i completely agree with that argument that if it's an anthropogenic injury in other words it's happened because of man um then we kind of have a duty to that bird but i think you know i also look at the big picture in terms of the injured wildlife creature comes into care and that's kind of like going into a bottleneck and then if it gets fixed, it goes back out again. And what's really, really important is, what are you sending back out there? And let me give you an example. Um, buzzards, obviously we all know, during wintertime eat lots of earthworms. Earthworms are the intermediate host for capillaria, a gut worm. Capillaria is very commonly a very pathogenic worm, often causing major, major problems. So, injured wild buzzard comes into care, goes into an aviary, no one checks the feces, no one worms it. And the problem is even if you worm it, this particular worm demonstrates what's called multiple drug resistance. So a standard worm at a standard dose doesn't work. Yeah. So in some ways, if they worm it, it's even worse because they haven't solved the problem and they, they are then believing, they, they are confident the bird doesn't have a problem. Comes into the aviary, poops all over the place and contaminates that aviary every future bird that comes through that rehab aviary and goes back to the wild gets infected and takes that parasite back to a wildlife population now if they're solitary living the chance of passing it on to another one is fairly remote but you know you could be talking about a colony living species so i think you know it's really really important uh, and you touched also on the welfare so we you know people who are doing rehabilitation they have got to be concerned about the welfare interests of the individual injured bird. They've also got to be concerned about their welfare and conservation interests of the wild population in terms of, first, do no harm. Now, if you're taking a pathogen or a parasite back to the wild to an endangered population, yes, you are doing harm to the wild. Uh, so, so that's an issue. From my point of view, um, yeah, you know, I, as I say, I've developed these new techniques and birds have got saved and released because of them. And that's fantastic in the UK. Has it, hand on heart, has it made a difference to conservation? No. You know, the odd more important bird, the honey buzzard, etc., may be, the odd golden eagle, white-tailed eagles, may be. But as, from my point of view, it's educating people. It's explaining the effect of anthropogenic injuries on wildlife that is important. 
trying to get people to understand that even in the UK, the electrical power um, uh, grid is a risk to wild and captive birds, birds landing on them and getting electrocuted and so on. That is an issue. So, so simply by working with injured wildlife, we can hopefully bring some argument to bear that we as a population have to be more careful to minimize our impact on wildlife populations. Um, we also need to educate people about the risks of transferring infection from wildlife population to humans, because of course, you know, we know 70% of new diseases in humans come from wildlife. Look at COVID. Um, and so hopefully people wake up about that. From a personal point of view, the experiences and training and development of new techniques, I, I could not have gone and done what I've done in Africa if I hadn't spent 25, 30 plus years doing it in the UK, learning these techniques. So for me, that's a big benefit and it's been a big benefit to vultures in Africa. Um, but in terms of, of UK wildlife, um, and I, and I do, on, you know, BWRC does fantastic work with rehab and training and conferences and symposia and so on. Um, but I do personally think that there should be some uh, inspection and licensing process for wildlife rehabilitation, because it is wrong for birds, for animals to come into care. Uh, you know, if someone takes it in looking after it, legally, they are in parentis locus. They are legally responsible for the quality of the care that that individual animal has and to make sure that they maximize, they don't restrict the potential for that bird to go back to the wild without causing it or the population any harm. And unless you have, you know, an inspection certification, uh, training requirements and so on in place, that doesn't always work. And, and I know that these guys will say, you know, we haven't got the money to pay for inspections and certification and so on, but actually we've got a duty of care to the animals that they're looking after. And from that point of view, I think, you know, they just have to take it on the chin that actually, if, if we're gonna do this work, we've got to do it of at the right quality. Um, and, you know, it's just like training falconers and everyone else working with wildlife. Um, dare I say it, a lot of experienced people a lot of people have been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, they can't tell me anything. There's nothing new. I can't be told I've been doing it for 50 years, which, of course, is completely the wrong attitude. Yeah. Uh, there are new diseases. There are new risks. There are new ways of doing things. There are new uh, welfare standards that have to be shared, learned and abided by. Um, so, you know, I think training of people working in these situations is really important. And personally, I would recommend a, a form of certification and approval. And one of the most important things is having an approved number of different species that that center can take in. You know, all of them want to save everything, but actually if they're set up to manage, I don't know, let's say 10 badgers, 20 foxes, 30 birds of prey, and they've suddenly got 50 birds of prey and 30 foxes, things are gonna go wrong. And, and actually having the honesty to say, I'm sorry, we can't take any more, but hear the details of someone else who can. Setting up a national network of wildlife rehabilitation um, facilities so that uh, whoever finds it can actually know where they can pass the animal on to is really important. Yeah, and I suppose, I suppose one of the other things that comes into it, which we've not really touched on because we've talked about saving stuff is, and, and this is something I've noticed with a few rehabilitation centers I've been is euthanasia as well. and the. Yeah the lack of you can't you can't 
can't possibly include that as a sort of toolkit. You know, you see all these, I've been mm -hmm. to rehab places where they've got aviaries full of pigeons with a wing missing and, yep. and yep. you know, or bl a blind owl or something like that. And you just yep. think, Personally, why? why? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid I'm quite bullish about that. And I, you know, having done it for the period I, of time I have, and and my professional status, I guess I can perhaps get away with it. But as far as I'm concerned, and the legislation is set such that um, you can take into captivity any wild injured bird to relieve suffering, um, which can be euthanasia or it can be treating it. Um, but the, there isn't actually a provision for keeping that animal in captivity long term. I know an awful lot of people do, but I would always say that's wrong. And I think the RSPCA has a pretty good outlook on this. And their, their view, firstly, is if they can't release something within three weeks, then it gets euthanized anyway. Um, and also, I think one point that they make, which is really good, is that as soon as we know the animal is unreleasable, we should be euthanizing it. And if that euthanasia occurs more than 48 hours after it comes in, we've got it wrong. Um, we should have done better. In other words, with experience and knowledge, you should be able to make that decision within 48 hours. And from my point of view, as soon as you know it can't go back, and vets and, and experienced rehabilitators have got a duty of care. I've gone to these places, and managers have said, oh, but we can't put it down. We have all these young people who are volunteers and they would be heartbroken. No, you educate them. You say, when they come to work, they say, look, this is the deal. We will do absolutely everything we can to save a wild animal for as long as we know it's got a chance to release back to the wild and, and a chance of survival when it gets back in the wild. And as soon as we know that's not the case, sorry, we're gonna put it down. And as long as they know that's the agenda right from the start, it's not a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I'm just watching the time. I know we're, we're flying, well, we're, we're, and I don't want to keep you uh, for too long, Neil. Um, but there's a question that I really wanted to ask you, talking about, touching on conservation, but also captivity. I'd, I'd love to get your opinion, I'm sure people would hear it, on the role that zoos have got in conservation nowadays. Because you, you've been so heavily involved in, you know, zoos from, I imagine, or, or animals in captivity at the very least. Yeah. Mm. from from the start of your, of your career uh, and you'll have seen changes throughout of standards yes. and, and absolutely and what absolutely what's yeah your and I put, I put my hand up because I'm a I'm a UK and an Irish zoo inspector um, so I I go to places not just bird places but with all sorts of animals and, and of course zoos have changed dramatically that zoos are much more orientated towards uh, keeping breeding conservationally important species um, and uh, every licensed zoo and obviously anywhere that is open to the public for seven or more days per year whether fee paying or not um, has to be licensed uh, and in the past some zoos got away by inviting people in or, or getting this pre-book and then saying well they weren't members of the public that's all going to change uh, any any center that is open whether pre-built or not is going to have to get licensed um, and that would include um, British wildlife rehab places that open up to for people to come come and look around so in terms of what is the role of zoos I think that they there is a really important role you know I'm really lucky I've been to Africa and spent many 
many hours uh, out doing safaris and looking at wildlife populations and so on. But I've been fortunate, I'm blessed. There are the vast majority of the, of the human population can't do that. So for them, you're having an opportunity to go to a zoo, uh, to look at animals in a, a cage situation. It, it's education. It's also training them about conservation. And I think the really important thing is, obviously, every zoo now, uh, they have to have a commitment to conservation. They have to do education. The education has to be proportionate to the size of zoo they have. And they have to monitor and quantify the outcomes of the education. Um, so, you know, it's not just, oh, we're going to have a nice day, like going to a theme park or something. There is a very strong message there. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of this is about maintaining uh, populations in captivity so that, let's take the vultures in Africa, for example. I, I have been suggesting, you know, Africa is a, is a dangerous place from a disease point of view. They have avian influenza, they have West Nile virus, they have Newcastle disease. Um, I think it's when you've got, you know, we're suggesting the white-headed vultures and hooded vultures are likely to be extinct in five years. Well, what we should be doing, uh, and particularly where we have flight-impaired captive populations of, of X, um, X free living vultures, we should be shifting them out of Africa, much as they did um, with, uh, with the, the rhinoceros. We should be shifting them all to other countries where we can set up and maintain uh, captive populations such that if we do lose vultures in Africa, and then in the fullness of time, the population realizes, oh, that's what we got wrong and puts it right, we've actually got populations of vultures we can reintroduce back to the wild. And I tried to set this up and it, it got really, really complicated. We got to a point where we could have brought a, uh, a colony of flight-impaired Cape vultures in, uh, but the South African government wanted a, 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 a signed letter from the British government assuring them that firstly, the South African government wouldn't have to pay any cost. And secondly, that, um, that, that the birds could go back or progeny of them could go back long term. And of course, getting a letter from that from the British government was, was really challenging. And then yeah. things, things suddenly went wrong. But I still think that's really important that the zoos do have that role. In, in education, about teaching about conservation, teaching about uh, wildlife uh, ecosystems, and you know, look what we're doing to the globe. Um, David Attenborough, this you know his wonderful book, this planet as I've lived on. You know, I mean that should be mandatory reading in every school in the country. Um, what we've done to our our ecosystem, the whole plastics problem, the ocean, the effect on the oceans. You know, these are all stories that are getting told really, really well in zoos. And, and you know, during lockdown, it's really pleased me because we've had to do some digital zoo inspections. And to find out that, for example, the, the Irish zoos that I'm, that I'm working with, um, they've actually uh, got funding to create uh, webinars and videos about uh, ocean pollution, plastics, etc., that are now compulsory in the Irish um, schools um, curriculum. curriculum. So, so actually, you know, the lockdown, although we, you know, they would maybe have, let's say, 20,000 kids going to their uh, oceanarium, um, that wasn't possible. But instead, they produced these, these learning um, tools 
that have then become compulsory for every school child in Ireland. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And that is the outcome from a licensed zoo in Ireland. So yeah, they can do a tremendous amount of good. There are good zoos, there are bad zoos. The legislation is there, the inspection process is tightening up um, and, and whether there are, good, there are bad zoos, they, they need to get sorted out, but you can only work within the legal framework that exists. So uh, they, they have a role. Um, uh, you know, I would still love to see everything in the wild, but then, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's, it's funny you should touch on. Sorry, I think my my speaker, my microphone's a bit dodgy today. Um, it's funny you should touch on uh, the what you were talking about with the Cape vultures and or, or bringing African vultures out of of Africa. Because uh, I don't know if you if you'd seen this, but that's something that, that the Philippine Eagle Foundation have, have just started. I say just started looking at. So they moved a pair of. Uh, Philippine eagles to Jurong Bird Park yep. in Singapore, the first first Philippine eagles to ever live outside the Philippines. And that was based on the idea that essentially as, as a captive group of birds, the Philippine eagle families, and I think they've got an, about 35 birds, and that's, that's it. There's no other that I know of and that I think the foundation of that have got them in the Philippines. It's yep. obviously yep. endemic species. Yep. And, and of course, Asia is a hotbed for avian influenza. Exactly. Exactly. So if if that were to hit the yeah the yeah. Uh, they're all in one place and they get an yeah. avian influenza outbreak in that one place the whole lot have gone and yet as you say if you move them out particularly if you move them to different land masses yeah. Um, yeah. then actually you're you're minimizing the risk of losing them all and and creating that population and at the same time educating and spreading the message about international conservation which again is important Right, I've got. I'm just conscious of time. So one more question, because you, you're now you're now working on a consultancy basis. I, yeah. I know. Um, the next ten years, Neil, what's what's the, <laughs> what's the next ten years hold to, to cap off? Uh, or any fun stories you want to tell? And then we'll... I, I I really don't know. Um, you know, I've 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 worked extremely hard, extremely stressful situation for a long time. And um, right at the moment, I'm enjoying taking life a little bit easier. And and I have to say, you know, I've, I'm one of these really driven workaholic type people. And and having done that for 35 years, I, you know, I have to be the first one to put my hand up and say, it's not good for your health. It's not good for your family, for uh, your relationships and all the rest of it. So um, I'm, I'm enjoying stepping back from, back from that a little bit. Um, I would love to do more vulture work and more teaching, sharing those, those skills with other people working with uh, endangered species in different places. But I don't want to do it to the point of being horribly stressed and tired and exhausted and, and so on, because there's more to life than that. So uh, it's just a bit more of the same. Um, but trying to do it in, in places where there will be a maximum output. So, you know, not necessarily going and teaching one person in say Bulgaria, but actually Ooh. getting 20 or 30 people together and doing it, then then you can you can create that effect and the goodness that Ooh. you can spread from it. That's a nice, nice one to finish on. Right, okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. That's a pleasure, Jimmy. Good to, to have the opportunity and uh, 
hope that people have found it interesting. Cheers, mate. Okay, take care.